For those of you who joined after the beginning, my name is Sally Armstrong, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. And today is Memorial Day, which we never know. Is that a good day for people coming to Spirit Rock or a day when people are doing other things? Um, but thank you for joining us here this evening. Uh, Memorial Day is a time to remember and honor those who died while serving in the armed forces, um, who made that ultimate sacrifice. So obviously a lot of ceremonies and remembrances happening today. But like many of these kinds of holidays, for a lot of people it's lost its original meaning. You know, if you ask what's Memorial Day, it's the start of summer or barbecue or the time when I go, you know, to the lake or whatever it might be. But it has a... a um, a more somber reflection than just beginning our enjoyment of better weather, though you wouldn't know it from what we're having at the moment, but it is meant to be the start of summer. But this sacrifice that men and women have made over these years, it's, it's enormous, as I said, the ultimate sacrifice, and it's not just the loss of their life. Of course, it affects all of their family and friends. We've had wars where whole generations have been affected by this loss of life, by the, the death toll. It's, it's, it's sobering. And so many people who've chosen to put themselves in harm's way out of patriotism or love of country or duty or for whatever reason and have died, have sacrificed their life. So really appreciating and honoring um, that and remembering. But of course, it's a complicated picture, isn't it? I actually looked this up because I was wondering about this fact of history. Got it off the internet, must be true. America has been at war 93% of the time since 1776, since the founding of the country, 224 out of 241 years, there's been some kind of war happening in the country outside. So kind of sobering, you know, that, that force in the mind, in the heart, and what it's moved people, countries, governments to do. Um, and it certainly shaped this country, that tendency, that attitude, and it certainly shapes how the U.S. is seen in the world, if you ever travel outside this country, which I do quite a bit. I'm actually from Australia. I go home and people say, what is going on? <laughs> I went, I'm not going to go there tonight, but you can kind of imagine. So we hold both, you know, the honoring and the, the compassion for the suffering that's happened, but it's, it's in a bigger context that we also have to reflect on and, and do our best to understand. So Memorial Day, Day of Remembering. It's actually interesting that the... <clears throat> The word that we translate as mindfulness in the Pali, which is the language and a very strange sound happening over there, uh, the language that these discourses were first recorded in. So the Buddha lived about 2,600 years ago, about 500 years after his death. Um, they started writing down what he had said and the language they wrote down in was Pali. So a lot of the words that we make reference to in our Dharma teachings are from that Pali language. Even the word Dharma is from that language. It's Sati. Sati, S-A-T-I, is the word we generally translate as mindfulness. That's the closest English 
word we could come up with for that term sati. But actually the derivation of that term in the Buddha's time was to remember. It was very associated with remembering. And so there's a component of mindfulness that's a lot about remembering. And this is an interesting aspect of mindfulness because we hear so much about its being in the now, which of course it is, it's knowing what's happening. But the clarity of our knowing in the present moment actually is what enables us to remember. If you're doing something and not paying attention, someone says their name or a phone number and you're not really clear on it, do you remember it? I know I don't. Even if I'm trying, I sometimes don't. But I certainly don't have a chance unless there's this clarity of presence of bringing that information in. Um, And so in the Buddha's time, it was very much associated with remembering. And the Buddha would say, oh, someone with good mindfulness can remember what has been said and remember particularly what the Buddha has said. And so as I said, when they... It was 500 years until they started writing these teachings down and up till then they were passed orally as it was an oral tradition. People literally remembered and I'm going to be using this book uh, in a little bit. This is one of the texts of the Buddha's words, the Majjhima Nikaya. It's one of many volumes of his teachings and people could remember many of the discourses within it and sometimes even the whole thing itself. There are people to this day that can remember and recite what's called the whole Tripitaka, the whole basket of the Buddha's teaching. So that was considered a real um, aspect of mindfulness, of of sati. And there's actually one of our um, teachers and colleagues, Venerable Nanalayo, is doing research with some of the brain researchers at the moment about this capacity of mindfulness to help us remember, because... It's kind of interesting that science is proving what the Buddha knew 2,600 years ago and what many of us know this to this day, but if science proves it, it must be true, right? So proving, doing research into the capacity of mindfulness to help us remember. Because again, when people understand these, um, the potential of mindfulness, it, it it's getting brought into the education system, into the healthcare system. So it's all good, but it's just always a little ironic that it's not until some scientist proves it that people believe it ex- instead of their own direct experience. But as I said, for us as practitioners, the most important aspect or quality of mindfulness is being in the present moment, knowing what's happening now. It's what I was reminding you to come into again and again in the meditation. It is the heart of our meditation. And the Buddha's original brilliant insight 2,600 years ago was to turn his attention away from what was happening externally and not just use his attention to calm and almost suppress the movement of the mind because that was the kind of meditation that most people at that time were practicing, concentration or samatha meditation. He turned his attention to his direct experience to know it in all of its detail, to know it in all of its complexity and nuance. And this was what was so brilliant about his um, insight or his, the practice that he developed was to shift the focus of attention to this clear seeing 
of the mind and body and all of the ways that it manifested. And there's a sutta in here that gives 27 different practices for working with the mind and the body. That's the heart of our Buddhist meditation practice. And he did that to understand how this mind and body works and ultimately to free it, to come to more freedom, liberation. He used the term nibbana, which meant for him the ultimate or the deepest, most profound freedom. So this is a radical step. And all of us to this day, if we meditate, we've taken this step of letting go of our outward fascination, the pull of the sense desires and the sights and sounds of outside, and stop and turn inward. And, you know, some of you are new to meditation, others of you have been meditating for many years. It's still a radical step, right? to do that. The first time you do it, it's kind of amazing. I almost, I always uh, liken it to snorkeling. When I first saw people snorkeling, I couldn't understand what they were looking at. It's like, there's water and there's sand. That's what I was used to. Where I grew up, that's all there was. What are they looking at, you know? And it wasn't until I put on that mask and looked down, I saw this whole world of coral and fishes and seaweed and all the things that are out there. Meditation is very much like that. I remember my um, friend, colleague, teacher, Joseph Goldstein, tells the story of the first time he learned to meditate, he was so excited by it, he invited his friends around to watch him meditate. <laughs> he didn't get many returnees to that um, evening's entertainment. I think they realized very quickly there wasn't much happening. But you just, I, just, I love that story because it... I just get a sense of how excited he was by this shift in perspective, this radical shift where we're not so lost in what's happening out there, but we get interested in what's happening in here, not to get self-absorbed, but to understand it, to begin to understand it. And Annie Lamott, famous local author, Mill Valley author, world-famous author, When she talks about looking at her mind, she said, my mind is a scary place. I don't want to go there alone. So we do it together so we can learn from each other. But many of us actually are kind of afraid or even perhaps ashamed of our mind. We wouldn't want anyone else to actually know what we were thinking. It's it's a scary and wild place in there sometimes, isn't it? And all of the directions our minds can go. I often say the mind has no shame. It will do anything to trip you up, to, to criticize you, to, to stump you, to challenge you. This is the nature of the untrained mind. The Buddha would often talk about the difference between the trained mind and the untrained mind. But part of this practice of meditation in getting to know the mind is actually seeing it in its universal nature. Yes, each of us as unique individuals with our unique conditioning has a particular type, not type of mind, <coughs> manifestation of mind. You know, We all have our own individual quirks and conditioning. But as we start to look at mind, and especially as we learn more about meditation, talk to each other, attend classes or retreats, we start to see not that different, really. There's a universal, there are universal qualities to the mind, to these movements of wanting or not wanting, the the capacity to be deluded, to be confused. We share that, all of us, in different ways. And so a, a, a profound 
um, benefit of meditation is seeing this universal nature, getting to know and understand the mind and not being so caught up in it and certainly not ashamed or, or um, afraid of it. We start to know our minds. And instead of being a victim of our mind, we can actually really work with it skillfully and the mind can become a great ally and a great friend. And more importantly, we see we can know, change, and train the mind that this is what the Buddha taught us. This is what is possible. And so this training of the mind was actually what was instrumental for the Buddha in his own awakening. Before he became a Buddha, which means the awakened one, the one who's free of greed, aversion, and delusion, he noticed that he had what he called two kinds of thought. And again, I'm going to read this as Majjhima 19, and the sutta, a sutta is a discourse, is called, they're usually very practical titles, two kinds of thought. And he said, uh, Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, and that means someone who's on the way to Buddhahood, it occurred to me, suppose I divide my thought into two classes. And he said, on one side, thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty, basically thoughts that were harmful. And on the other side, thoughts of renunciation of non-ill will or goodwill or metta, and thoughts of non-cruelty or compassion or kindness. So he just said, I'll do this. And then he goes on to say, I noticed when those thoughts that were harmful, of ill will, cruelty, um, and, and sensual desire, I would let them go. He would talk about different ways that he would work with them. He would abandon them, let them go. And then when the positive thoughts came up, when the thoughts of renunciation or kindness or compassion, he said, I would see these are, as he would call it, not blame, not to be blamed. They're actually beneficial for myself, for others, for both. I can rejoice in those thoughts. I can trust them. They're onward leading. And so this practice of dividing his thoughts, and the, the, the um, sutta goes on to say, after this, his mind started turning towards the awakening he, experience he had. Again, I'm not going to go into the whole story of the night under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, but it was this practice of dividing his thoughts up that led him to his night of awakening. So this just points to the power and even the necessity for us to recognize the kind of thoughts that we're having. And later in the sutta, he says, whatever, bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. This is a really central teaching. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So a big part of our meditation practice is learning how to work skillfully with thoughts, how to notice the kinds of thoughts that we're having. And again, if you've done any meditation practice, especially on retreat, you'll hear instructions to notice or put your thoughts into categories. Are they planning thoughts or remembering thoughts or worrying thoughts or um, rehearsing thoughts? Many of us have a very small list of the types of thoughts that we have. And just 
noticing how they fall into those categories can be really helpful because we start to see the repetitive nature of thoughts. And we get done with one round and we just start on another. And this is what I mean by the kind of universality of them. It's like these, this is what humans do. This is what this kind of mind does. It can be helpful, again, we have to do this skillfully, to notice the content of the thought. This is not to get lost in it. And again, this is a a practice that we learn because we don't want to just sit there and think. We're very good at that. We do that all the time, right? If you know, Most of the time, that's what you're doing. Even when you're trying to meditate, it's what you're doing, right? You're just sitting there thinking. So this isn't telling you you should get lost in the thoughts, but to start to notice where is the mind going? What are we paying attention to? Because our thoughts and where they go, especially where they go with repetitiveness, where they go habitually, that has something to teach us about how we've shaped our mind, about what we've given energy to, basically what we've fed. Because what we see, as the Buddha said, whatever we give energy to, that gets fed, that gets cultivated. And what we withdraw attention from, what we don't give energy to, I said in the meditation, can we say just not now? That will tend to diminish. So this is a great skill set to have because we're always cultivating something. We're always intending towards something, even if we're not aware of that cultivation, not aware of that intending. And bringing that into the light of mindfulness can really help us to understand how this mind works. And many of us can have the view or think we've heard that meditation is about getting rid of thoughts. And a good meditation is one where we don't think. Well, there are kinds of meditation where that is helpful, to really calm and quiet the mind and get more concentrated. But that's a very specific kind of meditation. For most of us, we're actually doing it so we can understand the mind, and thoughts are the functioning of the mind. Thoughts are how the mind is revealed to us. So we actually want to learn from our thoughts and cultivate a different relationship to our thoughts where they're not running the show. Because that's what usually tends to happen is we're so habituated to thinking and especially certain types, certain types of thoughts, certain categories of thoughts that we get just get taken up by their energy and, and we're lost. We're in this old habit pattern, in this old type of reactivity and we don't have any control over it. So learning that we can actually shift our relationship to thoughts and, and um, not be so driven by them, for many of us it's a revelation, it's huge. And the, the thing to see is thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If we don't notice them or we give them energy or we buy into them, believe them, they create our world. We just get shaped by that process. But, and maybe you've had this experience in meditation, if you turn your attention directly to the thought itself and know it as a present moment experience, what sometimes happens? Have you had that experience where you've just look directly at a thought. What happens? Disappears, right? Has anyone had that experience? 
to see that that's possible. Most of the time, the thoughts are just running the show. They're a commentary on life. They're our defense mechanism, our protector, our judge, our narrator. And it's so familiar, we don't even know it's happening until we shift the perspective, as I said, and start to notice it. And then it's radical to see that this thing that we've given so much power to is actually ephemeral. It's like a puff of smoke a whisper fog. So really important to notice that about thoughts, that we have more choice than we perhaps give ourselves credit for. And the other um, a big aspect of noticing the kinds of thoughts that we're having and workingly, working skillfully with them, the Buddha called Yonaso Manisikara, And this means wise or right or skillful attention. Basically saying that what we pay attention to creates feedback loops, right? If if we are always paying attention to what's wrong, what's difficult, what's challenging, what's scary, that's going to shape our minds and the world is going to become a scary place where everything is wrong. If we pay attention to what's good and what's wholesome and joyful, that's going to shape our mind. And, you know, in saying this, I'm not saying we should never notice what's difficult or wrong or only notice what's joyful, but just we need to notice what we're paying attention to. This wise or appropriate attention, yoni so, yoni actually means womb-like, as in the, the, the place that generates life and well-being. So it's really a womb-like attention, a nurturing attention, you could say, the kind of attention that leads to well-being. Unwise attention leads to the opposite. It leads us into places of negativity, of judgment and criticism, unskillful relationship to our inner experience and certainly to the outer world. And it leads us to act unskillfully. We act out of those negative mind states. And so we tend to act in ways that are harmful. As the Buddha said, he would look at his thoughts and the ones that led to harm for self, other, or both, he would see if he could let those go. If we don't see them, we tend to act out on them and we uh, we cause harm to ourselves and others. We can act unethically. We can break the precepts, uh, the guidelines for living an ethical or a non-harming life that we talk about in Buddhism. So the power of mindfulness is to reveal this to us, to have us turn our attention to what the mind is doing and how it's shaping us so we can then become an active participant, bringing more choice into that process. So what I'm saying is we need to pay attention to what we are paying attention to. For many of us, and especially younger people these days, just sucked into devices, right? And, you know, it's basically the internet and all of the different social media dimensions and the commenting and the judgments that are put out there, the news and the information, the salacious gossip and the latest this and the ten of that. We just get lost in that world. And if you look at really the nature of that world, it's usually not so wholesome. 
There's a lot of judging and criticism and envy and evaluation going on in it. Um, and, but we can just get sucked in, and, and that's what then, you know, what we're paying attention to. So what's shaping how we're relating to ourselves and the world? I, I, I saw this cartoon a while, a while ago. It had two panels, and the first one was called The Mouse Trap. And it had a mouse looking at a mouse trap, those horrible things with the slamming wire or whatever and the piece of cheese. And the mouse is saying, you know, very naively, oh, look, cheese. Not realizing, of course, it was a mouse trap. In the second panel, there's two humans looking at a computer and their, their, their words are, oh, look, an internet connection. You know, it's like, where can I get Wi-Fi? Where can I go get online to get my next fix? And it's amazing how it just, I mean, it only seems you could count on one or two hands the number of years where it's been essential, right, that we have Wi-Fi. Every airport has to have it. Every bookstore has to have it. Every coffee shop has to have it. You know, now meditation centers can't get away from it. It used to be we were outside the bandwidth of AT&T, but no longer. And, but this is what we're drawn into, right? And I'm just using that as an example. For you, it may be other things. It might be your work considerations or your family or your relationship. But the work of mindfulness is to reveal these patterns to us so we can make wiser choices around them. And so the Buddha talks about this all the time in these texts, how to pay attention to what we're attending to, and notice, is it, and he would use these terms which we translate as wholesome or unwholesome or skillful or unskillful, basically, do they lead to our benefit or not, harm or not? And he always included not just ourselves, but others. He would talk about self, other, and both, not separate. We need to consider the big picture. And so he would advise us to guard against or avoid unwholesome or unskillful states of mind that haven't yet arisen. And if they had arisen, to work with them skillfully so we'd learn how to let them go. But he would also say we should develop wholesome states, skillful states that haven't yet arisen. We can cultivate that. It's possible to cultivate more joy and equanimity and kindness and compassion. And when these states have arisen, we really need to recognize them, to celebrate them, to nourish them, to nurture them, to deepen them. So this sort of four-part aspect of of avoiding and abandoning are the terms that are used. You could say avoid or let go and then develop and maintain or nourish. These are the kind of hallmarks of what we do over and over again in our practice, in our, in our life. And uh, Venerable Analaya, who I mentioned earlier, who's doing the research on um, mindfulness and memory, says, how can you tell if this path is working, if this practice is working, if there's more joy and less suffering? It's really that simple. If it's not doing that, then something's not quite aligned with what the Buddha's talking about because that's what he's talking about. The good news is that it does work and that countless millions of people have done this practice and and found it beneficial. Daniel Goleman, who many of you might know, wrote that great book on emotional intelligence and for a time was a New York Times uh, science writer writer 
I read a, an interview with him um, about the work that he's done on emotional intelligence, basically saying we need to pay as much if not more attention to the emotions we have as we do to our so-called intelligence or IQ, intelligence quotient, exams and SAT scores, etc. So this is Daniel Goleman. We now have extremely compelling evidence showing that yes, Dharma practice does alleviate destructive emotions and that it does so by profoundly altering the way the brain functions. So this is the brain research again, which I love that they're doing it. It's just I always chuckle a little bit at some of their findings. The work of Richard Davidson, who's a great guy, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison has been key in discovering this. The good news is the brain is extremely plastic if we undergo systematic, repeated experiences. The problem is we almost never try to train the brain unless we're in the course of acquiring a skill. If you learn to play the piano, for instance, you are reshaping the cortical area that controls fine finger movements and, and further developing parts of the auditory cortex. If you start to drive a cab in London, within six months, the part of your brain that is operating when you are interpreting a map, in other words, your visual spatial memory, starts to expand and become stronger. This has been demonstrated using functional MRIs, the gold standard now for assessing brain function. The good news for practitioners is that meditation practice seems to be one of those systematic trainings of the brain that yields quite beneficial effects, even from the very beginning. So I love that this you know, kind, kind of training that you do if you are learning a language or um, a, learning a skill, it's usually towards some outer result. But in meditation, we're using the mind, the brain, to train the brain. It's a very, again, radical step that I was talking about at the beginning. And the good news is that it's possible. We can actually train this mind, using the mind, to be a better mind. The trouble is we're using a very flawed tool to do the training. And we have to be aware of that and kind of compassionate about this process because it doesn't happen easily. You've done a lot of training in the other direction, right? However long you've been alive, you've trained this mind to be whatever your habits are, critical, deluded, um, uh, greedy, aversive, negative, you know, all of those patterns that we tend to have. So yes, it, it does happen, start to, start to happen straight away, but the work is deep and powerful, and it needs to take time. But as the Buddha says in that sutta, whatever we think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So it really is to pay attention to what we pay attention to, because that's what's shaping us. And if we start to bring more clarity to that, we can literally, literally shape the mind, shape the brain. I've just been reading... This book, many of you may know it, My Stroke of Insight by Jill Balti-Taylor, came out quite a while ago. I forget when it came out, but someone just sent it to me the other day, so I just started reading it. And I'd, I'd heard her TED talk 
originally uh, many years ago, and she's now got a PBS special and a website. She's a brain scientist, actually a neuroanatomist. I'm not even quite sure what that is, but you know, she was an academic, very well respected in her field. In the mid and late 90s, she had a massive stroke, which is a cerebral he hemorrhage of her left hemisphere of her brain. And it's just a fascinating story of a neuroscientist actually observing in real time what happened in that experience. So really recommend it. It's not very long, um, interesting reading, because she says stroke is the number one disabler in our society and the number three killer. So many of us may know someone who's had this experience, not quite like hers perhaps, but had a stroke. She's got a lot of advice on supporting people who've had a stroke, how to know if you're having a stroke. So valuable for that, but I'm finding it valuable because of what happened to her in that experience. So she talks about the two hemispheres of the brain and how they have very different functioning. The right, in the right hemisphere, and she calls it the right hemisphere or the right mind, no time exists other than the present moment. And each moment, this is, so this is from the book, each moment is vibrant with sensation. Life or death occurs in the present moment. The experiencer of joy happens in the present moment. Our perception and experience of connection with something greater than ourselves happens in the present moment. To our right mind, the mo moment of now is timeless and abundant. So she started to have access to that in this experience. The present moment is a time when everything and everyone are connected as one. As a result, our right mind perceives each of us as equal members of the human family. It identifies our similarities and recognizes our relationship with this marvelous planet which sustains our life. It perceives the big picture, how everything is related and how we all join together in making up the whole. Our ability to be empathic, to walk in the shoes of another and feel their feelings is a product of our right frontal cortex. And I would say the kinds of feelings and experiences that are developed through meditation, especially when you join mindfulness with metta, with loving-kindness meditation that opens the heart to the sense of connectedness. That could be a description of the affect of meditation practice. But she goes on to say, in contrast, our left hemisphere is completely different in the way it processes information. It takes each of those rich and complex moments created by the right hemisphere and strings them together in timely succession. It then sequentially compares the details making up this moment with the details making up the last moment. By organizing details in a linear and methodical configuration, our left brain manifests the concept of time whereby where their moments are divided into past, present, and future. Our left, left hemisphere, via our left hemisphere language centers, our mind speaks to us constantly, a phenomenon I for, refer to as brain chatter. And I was talking about this, a commentator, the narrator, this, this voice 
most of us have talking to us all the time. She calls it brain chatter. It is the voice reminding you to pick up bananas on your way home and that calculating intelligence that knows when you have to do your laundry. One of the, job of, one of the jobs of our left hemisphere language centers is to define ourselves by saying, I am. Through the use of brain chatter, your brain repeats over and over again um, the details of your life so you can remember them. It is the home of your ego center, which provides you with an internal awareness of what your name is, what your credentials are, and where you live. Without these cells performing their job, you would forget who you are and lose track of your life and your identity. So for Jill, as for many of us, the left center, the left hemisphere dominates. And all of those details and that chatter and that narration and that evaluating happens to the detriment of the capacity of our right hemisphere. Now, it's not to say we don't need the left brain, the left hemisphere. Of course we do. It's how we function. It's how we use language. All of those details and capacities that we have for moving about in the world, extremely necessary. But for many of us out of balance in this, I am, I am, I want, I need, you know, that commenting voice that's always in charge dominates and suppresses that capacity she spoke about for feeling connected and alive and in the moment and at peace. She says, when with the stroke, as the brain, as the brain, as the blood flooded this left hemisphere of her brain, her perceptions shifted. And this is just, it was so interesting for me. I shifted from the doing consciousness of my left brain to the being consciousness of my right brain. I morphed from feeling small and isolated to feeling enormous and expansive. I stopped thinking in language and shifted to taking new pictures of what was going on in the present moment. I was not capable of deliberating about past or future related ideas. All I could perceive was right here, right now, and it was beautiful. So this capacity for expansiveness, beauty and joy when her right hemisphere became more dominant. My left hemisphere had been trained to perceive myself as solid, separate from others. Now released from that restrictive circuitry, my right hemisphere relished its attachment to the external flow. I was no longer isolated and alone. My soul was as big as the universe and frolicked with glee in a boundless sea. This is while she's having a stroke. I mean, it's quite amazing that she could experience this. And again, I'm not, you know, we don't want to have a stroke to experience this as sort of not advocating that or advocating lobotomies or getting rid of your left hemisphere. But I really saw from what she was saying this imbalance that most of us have and that one of the functions of meditation is to get us more in touch with this feeling being capacity of the right hemisphere from the language that she was using to describe this very direct and very powerful experience that she has. So as she said, his book is called My Stroke of Insight. She says, my stroke of insight would be that peace is only a thought away 
And all we have to do to access it is silence the voice of our dominating left mind. Now again, not to uh, be derogative towards the left mind, but seeing what does it take to bring it more into balance and that the work of meditation is not to stop thinking, but to look at and work skillfully with, especially those thoughts that basically get us into trouble that keep us spinning around in thoughts of negativity or fear or shame or guilt or worry or anxiety that so many of us spend so much time with. And to see there is a choice there more than we think is possible. Not not waiting to have a stroke to, to realize that capacity. So we actually turn the attention, as I've been saying. Look at this mind and see how it functions, see what we're feeding. Can we shift that dynamic so that we're actually feeding what serves us, what brings us joy, what allows us to have that capacity to be present and connected and kind and empathic. We can do that through our moment-to-moment experience, through the practice of meditation. As we do this, we have to do it with a lot of skill and kindness. We don't get it by berating ourselves and adding more judgment to the judgment, trying to get rid you know, of whole parts of ourselves, but actually drawing it in, bringing it closer with this real tenderness of, oh, you poor dear, look at what you've been lost in all day today. Can we relax a little? Can we soften here? Can we be a little kinder so that these thoughts can actually be known and calmed rather than, you know, feel they're being abandoned, thrown out um, uh, uh, with aversion? So it's really uh, a gradual practice. We've got to do with a great amount of care and attention. Um, We can't control the thoughts or emotions that arise. They're arising out of past conditions, but the more that we pay attention to them when they are here, we realize we're not in control of what arises, but how we respond to them. We have more influence, and you could say intentional control, than most of us give ourselves credit for. Again, it's that moment of recognition that's so key. Can we notice what's happening and respond more skillfully with it? So again, from the book from Jill Bolte-Taylor, as my left brain became stronger, this is in her recovery. What's amazing, she made a full recovery from this massive stroke. It took years, but she did it. As my left brain became stronger, it seemed natural for me to want to blame other people or external events for my feelings and circumstances. Ever do that? (laughs) But realistically, I knew that no one had the power to make me feel anything except for me and my brain. That's a radical statement. No one had the power to make me feel anything except for me and my brain. Nothing external to me had the power to take away my, my peace of heart and mind. That was completely up to me. I may not be in total control of what happens in my life, but I certainly am in charge of how I choose to perceive my experience. This 
is central to the Buddha's teaching. He talks again and again about perception and how that's a, um, a universal functioning of the mind, how we perceive things, and that it's conditioned and that by noticing how we're perceiving, we can actually shift these tendencies of mind. Again, this is radical. And mindfulness is what allows us to do that, but we have to train ourselves to do it. It doesn't just happen. The forces, the, the, the energy behind these, this kind of thinking is so strong, it takes a lot to actually let it rise into awareness. But this allowing of a choice point, this is what mindfulness does, is coming into the present moment, recognizing what's happening, and knowing in that space, how do I respond? Do I feed this or do I let this go? Do I open to this with kindness or do I actually bring in some, try to shift the direction of the mind stream? As Sylvia Borstein, who often teaches here, says, suffering is inevitable. No, sorry, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And what we, when we use that word suffering or dukkha, we're talking about what we call the second arrow, which is our response to difficult experiences. And especially all the ways, as Jill Balty Taylor says, we blame or judge. Why me? This shouldn't be happening. It's their fault. And if only, and I should have, and they could have, and they didn't, and I want. That's the second arrow. And we can get lost in that. Give our power away. Give, certainly give away the power or the possibility of having a peaceful mind by attributing or giving um, that power to others or external circumstances. So really the, the challenge or the possibility of mindfulness is can we know what's happening clearly and then the possibility of a wiser response. And I've always liked this. Many of you probably heard teachers here at Spirit Rock tell this story, but it's so appropriate for what I've been talking about. I'm going to say it one more time. And it's by that venerable author, Anonymous. I don't know where it came from. It's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. But it isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend that I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in this same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. This is the shift. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) So, again, it just encapsulates this process that I'm talking about, how we can be in this blaming, judging mode um, and the, 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 it just makes us helpless. We're lost in that. We have to see clearly. And, you know, 
the first many times, we'll see it and we still do it, whatever it is, whatever that habit pattern is. But ultimately, with enough clarity, we see where we are and we know how to get out. And ultimately, we walk down another street. This is what is so possible for us, is that we actually shift, as Daniel Goleman said in that piece earlier. And again, the important thing that the Buddha said over and over again, this is possible. He said, if it wasn't possible to train the mind in this way, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it is possible. So I ask you to do so. And it will be for your benefit, the benefit of others and the benefit of both. And as we do this work, you know, and it's you know, often two steps forward, one step back, but that's the direction that we go. We feel the benefits, as Daniel Goleman says. The mind and heart become more open. These beautiful descriptions that Jill Bolte-Taylor talked about are the actual benefits of meditation. She often describes her experience as one of nirvana. She said, I think this is what the Buddhists are talking about. Nirvana or Nibbana, what the Buddha... And I think a lot of her language is very close. Um, This feeling of empathy, of compassion, of connectedness, of non-judgment, of openness, of calmness, of peace. Her adjectives go on and on about how blissful that experience was and how painful it was to have her left brain start to come in and judge and evaluate break things up again. But this is the natural direction that this practice goes in towards more and more kindness, connection, empathy, and calm. And as the mind becomes more calm, it starts to see more clearly. When we see clearly, we have what we call insight. This is called insight meditation because it enables us to see more clearly, and we don't have to have a stroke to have that clarity of seeing, luckily. Um, And then there's this kind of iterative process, this beautiful process of deepening into calming, into clearing, into connection, and that just keeps feeding itself, just as the negative patterns fed themselves and kind of perpetuated. Now these patterns start to feed and deepen each other. And as the Dalai Lama says, that great teacher, inner discipline is the basis of a spiritual life, the fundamental method for achieving happiness. And as Analeo said, this is the test or, or, or the direction this goes, more happiness, more freedom. But it starts from turning our attention to this mind and this heart, not becoming a completely different person, not getting rid of whoever we think ourselves to be, but starting right here and right now and seeing that it's possible and that there are all of these supports and inspirations for us. I mean, that's what's amazing about living in this time and age, in this, certainly in this place in the Bay Area. So many books and teachings, classes and retreats, different modalities, but it's up to us to do the work. That's the challenge. It can't just be a good idea, something we think we should do. To do this really takes discipline. As the Dalai Lama said, inner discipline is the basis. 
we have to really want this for ourselves. And not only that, we have to honor our internal experience, value it enough that we do it. So many of us will be put off or, or um, distracted because of the, self, the judging thoughts that we have. We don't consider ourselves worthy or serious enough or dedicated enough or whatever the pejoratives might be. And so just to actually commit, and one of my teachers, Bhikkhu Bodhi, he probably didn't make this up, but I heard it from him. He said, there are only two things you need to be successful on, a, on this spiritual path. And everyone always perks up, because that sounds doable, doesn't it, right? Two things, to start and keep going. And it's, yeah, simple to say, really hard to do, but really, um, as I, I'm obviously, uh, this is the practice that's really sh- shifted and shaped and changed my life. When I think back to who I was before I started meditating, It's just been amazing to feel the benefit that it's brought to my life and the people that I work with as students and other teachings. Um, It's it's just opens my heart to think of the possibility of this path of practice. So we only have a few minutes left, but I'm just curious for you... You know, you're here, obviously, you don't know what level of connection or dedication you have to a path of practice, but we all have minds. We've all lived with our minds since we started having thoughts. What do you notice that your mind goes to, typically, that brings you trouble? That, that, that basically is suffering, that gets you caught... And any skillful means you've learned from your life experience, from meditation, could be anything, being out in nature, what's helped you work with that? You know, it could be meditation. And there was a George who was, has a microphone, just because we have a recording here. Anyone, and I know it's always hard to put your hand up and speak to a group, anyone willing to share? Where, where, where does your mind tend to go What's difficult about that in any skillful means? Yes, George, there's someone right here at the front. Put your hand up again. I would say blame. Blame? Blame. Mm-hmm. And being a recovering Catholic, I would say that it's uh, um, judgment. Maybe. Yes. And um, I used to work with foster kids and did a lot of training. Mm. And uh, they taught us to have three things that we would do when there was a difficulty. And I keep coming back to the same thing. It's the first thing on my list, and that's the breath. The breath? The breath. Take a breath. Take a breath. Uh, There's a psychologist, I can't remember her name, that I've been following a little bit for the last year or so, and she she did a big thing on um, diet, but she she does a lot of different psychological trainings, and she, she said if you hesitate, and there was a certain, there's a lot of, you talked about a lot of, uh, uh, intellectuals studying different things, and so she went to a lot of uh, statistics. And if you hesitate for three seconds, the brain goes someplace else, or seven seconds. The I don't brain would what? The brain goes someplace. It stops the, the craving. There's oh, a certain very short period t- of time. Period yes. of time. And so taking a breath yeah. can be almost enough, and maybe to reduce 
certain percentage for whoever you are of craving. So it's I, amazing the power of that. So thank you. And so first thing you said was the tendency was to blame and being Catholic has a strong conditioning around that. And I think many of us do blame and judge. You know, it's what we do inner and outer. Um, and the value of just the simple practice of taking a breath and to divert the attention. And that's exactly what I mean. At that moment of hesitation, instead of you know, blurting out what you might have been going to say or having the hand reach out to grab something, go to the fridge, we're easily distractible. That's good news and bad news, right? But if we use that skillfully, you know, it's like dangling the car keys and getting, grabbing your phone from the two-year-old and dangling the car keys. It's like, give me that and I'll give you this. It's, it can be really skillful. And to m m cultivate and develop, maintain this relationship with the breath where it's a, um, basically a friend. It's like, oh, the breath. It's your call back to presence. It's your, 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 your sense of the now. And we do that by doing it just like we did this evening, by sitting and gently paying attention. We can't just, again, expect to have it happen because, oh, I, I wish when something difficult happened I'd be with my breath. No, we've got to train ourselves to want to do that, to have this relationship with the breath. So thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? Any difficulties? In George, right here at the front, we're going to get your exercise. Judgment is, um, torments me. Mm. Um, and uh, what I've found is really helpful. I heard somebody um, at a meeting one time say that uh, she was judging people and she saw that her critical mind was really active. And I was just, um, it really sat with me. And so when I start to, you know, like I'm driving and I want to tell people how they should be driving or, or I'm sitting next to people and I, I don't like the way they're sitting or I don't like, oh, there's my critical mind exactly. really active again. Yes. And that's what I mean about universality. I talked about earlier. We start, to, oh, this is what minds, many minds do. We don't have to take it personally, blame or judge, add blame or judging to that. Oh, that's that critical mind. You know, in meditation retreats, one of the, we talk, call it noting, noting what's happening that we just say, oh, judging, <coughs> judging is happening. Jack Cornfield often jokes with people, start counting your judging thoughts. And by the time you get to 429, you just, it's what the mind does. And you don't, you stop taking it so seriously. It is just, oh, the critical mind is active. And again, it's, it's a bit like the taking the breath you kind of take the fire out of the content. This is what mindfulness does. It sees that experience in perspective, and that very clear seeing doesn't feed it. As soon as we bring it into mindfulness, we shift our relationship to it. Oh, will you look at that? There's a neutrality or an interest or an openness to it that's not fueling that tendency of mind. So, great. Okay, last one, gentlemen right here. Hi, yeah. Um, the thing that I found to be helpful over the years was kind of what you were describing the Buddha uh, recommending. He was saying, let me categorize these mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, I'm a Mahayana Buddhist, and I just kept going into that positive one as much as I could. Mm -hmm. And I would, 
it, for me, it, it gave my sort of overactive brain something to do. Yes, yes. And I found that in the end, even though I've had experiences where you sort of break the boundary between positive and negative at some stage mm -hmm. or some perception changes there, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. The brain, you give you the brain some f homework. Yes. And it starts to go into this positive space of like, oh, I'm going to create benefit. I'm going to create benefit. I'm going to create benefit. And Say that again. I'm going to create benefit. Oh, benefit. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the only <clears throat> trick there is, you know, you don't want to get too serious about I'm creating the right, benefit. Right. But aside from that small hang-up, it's quite a good thing to spend your energy on. Totally. No, wonderful. Thank you. And that's getting into what, uh, if I had more time, I would have encouraged people you to talk about is you want to notice what's difficult, but you also really want to notice what's wholesome, what's beneficial. You know, one of our teachers, James Barris, has this powerful training, a series of classes that he does. He's got a book on as well called Awakening Joy, where his encouragement to people is notice what's positive, notice what's beneficial. And that we have a choice, and we can go around and notice everything that's wrong, if that's your tendency, but you start actively trying to notice what's positive, what's beneficial, and there's far more there than we normally perceive, and it starts to shift the shape of our experience, because we have more joy, more positivity, more benefit in our experience. This is exactly what I'm talking about. What we choose to notice shapes our mind, and we have far more choice over that than we think possible. And it's all about training the mind. This is huge. Okay, thanks, George. We should finish up. Our time has come to an end. So we'd like to finish the evening just by taking a moment to sit quietly, letting the words settle a little, and just reflecting on the benefit of making the mini pilgrimage out here to Spirit Rock, however long it took you to get here, chose to come on a holiday, Memorial Day, and spend the evening hearing Dhamma teachings and practicing. May your meditation practice be of blessing and bring benefits to you in your life, in your heart, in your mind, and expand outward to also bring blessing <clears throat> and benefit to those near and dear to you, family, friends, and loved ones. But our practice can also benefit wider than that. Just the deepening of compassion and wisdom and kindness in our hearts as we move about the world as a ripple effect. We can offer our practice and the benefits of our practice so that it supports the deepening of kindness the opening of hearts and the alleviation of suffering in the world. So thank you for being here tonight, listening to the Dhamma. May you travel home safely. Hope to see you again here at Spirit Rock. Lots of information out there about different classes. I'm actually doing a day long next Saturday in San Rafael, Marin Sangha. If you have a day and you'd like to come meditate with me, it'd be lovely to see you. Okay. And we don't need to announce anything? No? Good. Thank you and good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.